taking power and new agendas. We as a team and as a caucus reflect the diversity and the strength of the American people. House Democrats celebrate the election of a new historic leadership team. Kevin has worked harder than any other candidate for speaker I've seen. I think he's got the majority of our conference. But Republicans disagree over who should lead them as they come back into power in Congress. Meanwhile, some in the GOP denounce hate speech as former President Trump faces blowback after dining with racists and anti-Semite. Plus, it really uh, kind of a coup attempt. The January 6th committee prepares its final report and weighs whether to make criminal referrals to the Justice Department. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. For the first time in a generation, there's a new historic group leading the Democratic Party in the House. On Wednesday, Democrats voted to elect Hakeem Jeffries of New York as the House Minority Leader of the next Congress. Jeffries is the first black leader of a party in Congress in history. Representative Catherine Clark of Massachusetts was elected Minority Whip, and Representative Pete Aguilar of California is now caucus chair. All three ran unopposed. Here's Congressman Jeffries after his election. House Democrats fight for the people. That's our story. That's our legacy. That's our values. That's our commitment as we move forward. And this week, there are other big, big developments for Democrats. Today, in a dramatic change, a Democratic National Committee panel voted to replace Iowa with South Carolina as the first state to vote in the Democratic presidential primary. There still needs to be a final vote of approval by the full DNC. That's expected to happen early next year. Meanwhile, it was a rocky, rocky week for concurrent Republican minority leader Kevin McCarthy, he is expected to be the next Speaker of the House, but he has yet to secure the 218 votes needed to be elected to the position, as some hardliners in the Freedom Caucus, of course, the sort of right-wing right wing part of his party, continue to withhold their support. McCarthy and the GOP have also been dealing with the fallout from former President Donald Trump's dinner with Nick Fuentes and the rapper formerly known as Kanye West. Now, both men have expressed racist and anti-Semitic views. Here's McCarthy on Tuesday. I don't think anybody should be spending any time with Nick Fuentes. He has no place in this Republican Party. Joining me to discuss this and more, Nia Malika Henderson, senior political analyst at CNN. And joining me here around the table, Michael C. Bender, political correspondent for The New York Times. It's his first time on Washington Week, so thank you and welcome. Uh, Weijia Zhang, senior White House correspondent for CBS News. You've seen her here before. And Asma Khalid, uh, White House correspondent at NPR and co-host of the NPR Politics Podcast. So, Nia, I'm going to start with you. What's the significance of this new leadership team on the, in, in the House Democratic Party and the fact that Jim Clyburn is staying on? Jim Clyburn staying on, but other than that, I mean, this is a sea change, 30 years difference uh, between the old guard and this new guard. And you saw that they have pretty much sailed to power unopposed. There was some, I think, concerns early on about whether or not progressives would be on board with this, whether they would try to mount some challenges. 
But so far, the progressives uh, I've talked to seem pleased with this new team, some history makers there and Hakeem Jeffries uh, and Pete Aguilar. And they've all been sort of brought up through the ranks over the years by Nancy Pelosi. This is sort of a handpicked group uh, by her. In terms of Jim Clyburn, he will be a number four uh, in a number four position. This kind of caused some consternation among some of the younger members of Congress who were very ambitious and saw in this generational shift real opportunities. So with Jim Clyburn remaining on in the number four position, they kind of had to do some reshuffling uh, for another member, Joe Neguse out of, out of Colorado, who'll be in a new position where he's kind of in charge of messaging. But listen, overall, this was a really smooth, smooth transition. And you've got this younger, fresher face to the party. And I think a real kind of attempt to reorient, reorientate the Democratic Party to more working class voters. That was a little bit harder to do with Nancy Pelosi, who is worth tons of money and is a San Francisco liberal. So in Hakeem Jeffries, you've got somebody uh, from Brooklyn and who can quote Biggie Smalls uh, pretty credibly. So this is a real different kind of vibe, I think, you'll get from the Democratic Party going forward. Certainly a different vibe and a markedly smooth transition. Um, Ouija, the president, um, how does he see this leadership change, given the fact that there is this interest in a new guard, but also he's possibly wanting to run for president. Of course, he's saying he's going to withhold his final decision, but saying that he intends to run. Well, I think President Biden, having been in Congress and the Senate for decades, understands because he has seen um, not only Congress change, but of course, uh, the the country. And he has mentioned from his first day in office and well before that, um, that, you know, the government needs to reflect the people, which is why he has so many initiatives, so many policies that he says are based on equity, on based on diversity. And so I think, you know, the president uh, welcomes this very much. He and Jeffries, of course, are friends. They've worked together before. And I think he understands that this is critical um, in order for the party to evolve into the next chapter. And Asma, you know, if you think about the close working relationship that Jeffries has with Biden, there's also on the other side a very tense relationship that Hakeem Jeffries has with the Republicans. Nia talked about him quoting Biggie Smalls. He's done that and a lot of times in attacks against Republicans. What's your sense of his working relationship with McCarthy or possibly other Republicans? He was known for having a close relationship with one conservative, Doug Collins, but I wonder what you're hearing. Yeah, I mean, I think that you mentioned McCarthy. I mean, I think there's even questions about whether or not he's entirely going to be speaker, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a moment. Certainly. But, I mean, I think the biggest question I've had about this new Congress is essentially what they will be able to achieve. Uh, you know, I've been talking to a bunch of people, sources at the White House, and there's a sense that, that a lot of what's going to happen over the next couple of years is very limited legislation. Um, you know, Republicans, so I will say that a lot of what Hakeem Jeffries is going to be able to do in the next two years is, I think, somewhat symbolic in terms of establishing Democratic priorities and creating a really clear contrast, a really clear foil for the Democrats to take into 2024. They haven't had that foil in the last two years. And Michael, as I was just talking about how Kevin McCarthy might not be speaker, I wonder what you're hearing about the potential for this to get even more complicated for him, maybe even for someone else to come up and say, you know what, I have the votes to be speaker. Yeah, definitely. First of all, thank you for having me on here. Yeah, and, we're so excited. Really, really excited to be uh, <laughs> with, with such a talented group here tonight for the first first time on the show. Um, you know, Kevin McCarthy has, a has, has, you know, has some problems on his hand. And even if he becomes speaker and is able to pull this off, which uh, it's, he's probably still the odds-on favorite, although he's got to secure those votes in, in order to... Uh, uh, he's still got that task ahead of him. He's going to have these kind of... Pro I mean, this is going to be indicative of whoever is speaker uh, uh, on the Republican side 
the, the issues they're going to have trying to, to manage um, the, this unruly caucus with uh, uh, a lot of different viewpoints inside and with such a narrow uh, margin in the House. Um, you know, it, it's striking to me here, you know, that even the Clyburn story became a story. Um, it was such a brief challenge, right? Um, but uh, it, it kind of shows on the Democratic side how well they have done this year at avoiding big public fights within their party. There are as many disagreements inside the Democratic Party as there are ideologically as there are, are the Republicans. They've been able to manage those, uh, not just in Congress, but during the midterms as well. And plenty of Republicans have, have brought this up to me as a reason that Democrats did such a good job at, at, at sort of stemming the losses uh, in the House and holding on to the Senate. They avoided these big primaries, obviously, and heading into the midterms. Uh, on the other hand, uh, McCarthy, um, you know, I mean, Clyburn to a degree, he's one of the most important Democrats in the party for the last decade, no question. About it. <laughs> yeah, and, yes, definitely. Uh, the Senate side, McConnell holding on, right? Um, uh, you know, you look back at the last couple of years, uh, all the retirements we've seen in Congress the last couple of cycles, and every time there's a big retirement in Congress, uh, you know, the, the reason is always how hard it is to get things done. Yeah. You know, it, 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 how bad things have become inside the Congress. They're talking about their leaders in the way. If we heard voters saying these kinds of things out on the campaign trail, we would expect a wave election, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And instead, th these members keep electing the same leaders uh, time and time again. Um, Mitch McConnell has, what, a 10% approval rating nationally, and he's in charge of the Senate again. Yeah. McCarthy um, is going to be, again, the odds-on favorite here. Uh, you wonder how much both parties would benefit with, you know, we see the changes on the Democratic side from some changes uh, in leadership inside Congress. Well, and talking about changes, Nia, a big change is coming, it seems, to the Democratic National Committee in that calendar where they're putting your home state, South Carolina, maybe you're feeling a little good about it because it's you're a native. Um, I wonder what you make of this change, what's driving it. Listen, South Carolina is rarely first in anything, so this idea that it might be first... Uh, listen, I was texting with a Democrat down in South Carolina, and I said, listen, South Carolina could be first, and they said, job security for Joe Biden, right? Because if he is going to run, it certainly looks like he will, it'll be great for his candidacy to stave off any potential maybe progressive challenger uh, that South Carolina the state that really delivered him to the nomination, delivered him ultimately to, to the White House and securing him in that nomination first, that that would be the first state. That would show his strength. And listen, even beyond 2024, I think it's a message to other Democratic presidential hopefuls that you really need to do well with black voters uh, should you want to seek the nomination of the Democratic Party. So this is good news for Joe Biden. It's good news for somebody like Kamala Harris. Should she want to run for president? It's good news for somebody like Raphael Warnock, uh, who, if he is uh, prevails on Tuesday, I think is going to, you know, sort of rocket to the, everybody's list as somebody who might run for president one day. So this is a real kind of sea change, but something that has happened, you know, or, uh, over a discussion of 20 or 30 years, going back to Jesse Jackson about the strength of African American voters, the, the primacy that they should have uh, in the Democratic Party. We should also note that last go round. Iowa was terrible, right? We didn't know the results out of the Iowa caucus for days and days and days and days because they just messed it up. And so now you've got South Carolina, my home state, uh, possibly becoming the first uh, nominating contest. There's sort of hurdles to jump over going forward at the state level for all of these states that are going to be moved up. But so far, I mean, it's looking like uh, Democrats really like this. And listen, a lot of South Carolina...
Democrats didn't know this was going to happen. Joe Biden had to call Jim Clyburn and tell him that this was happening. I think uh, the DNC chair, uh, Jamie uh, Harrison, was at a party fundraiser, so th they had to tell him there. So this was something, obviously, Clyburn wanted. A lot of South Carolina de Democrats wanted as well. But listen, they were surprised as anyone. Yeah. Asma, what are you hearing about sort of the primary counter changes, the political ramifications yeah. of this, especially even for the general elections when now you also have New Hampshire and also Nevada yeah. being going to be up there, too? That's what I was going to say. I mean, you mentioned the impetus. The, the major impetus for these changes was actually this letter from President Biden essentially outlining how he wanted this calendar changed with South Carolina at the top, followed by New Hampshire and Nevada, and then Michigan and Georgia. Um, you know, look, there has long been criticism that Iowa and New Hampshire, the two states that went first were not really demographically representative of the Democratic mm -hmm. Party. Uh, I think the impetus immediately, though, as, as uh, we just heard, was the fact that the Iowa caucuses themselves were a mess last time around. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, one of the challenges moving forward, though, is going to be I think that South Carolina is a smaller media market state, but some of these other places, you know, you talk about a, a Michigan or a Georgia, those are states that have pretty decently expensive media markets with Detroit and Atlanta. And yeah. there are questions of could a candidate like Barack Obama have come to the top if he really wasn't able to do those county fairs and, you know, meeting individual voters the way you can in Iowa. And it's a critical question, Weijia, and it's also in some ways related to this idea that President Biden is trying to do all he can to sort of generate goodwill and have a, a good political future ahead of him. The rail strike, though, mm -hmm. this bill that he has signed now into law, um, basically saying here is going to be the deal among these workers, but doesn't have sick leave, any increase in sick leave right. in it. What are you hearing from the White House about that? You know, this was a really difficult position for President Biden. He said as much himself um, because, it, he, you know, this is kind of a triple whammy. He himself has branded himself as uh, the most pro-labor president in history, as the rail guy, as someone who supports paid leave for all Americans. And this sort of shows a failure of all three. I mean, you have union workers now, union leaders now saying that he turned his back on them because essentially they say that he took away their right um, to collective bargaining, right? Because this bill now forces the um, agreement into action. And so they aren't able to strike. They lost that. But of course, for, for the White House, um, you know, they were relying on the numbers to try to explain why. If there was a rail strike, it could cost $2 billion a day. It could cost 800,000 jobs within two weeks. So I think, you know, they felt like they didn't have a choice, but certainly um, there's going to be repercussions. I mean, think about how much support the unions gave him um, and brought him to the White House. And now, you know, that political goodwill, as you mentioned, has disappeared. Yeah. And, Michael, I have to take almost, it's almost a, a hard turn to make, but one that we have to make in a week like this, which is how we have to talk about hate speech mm. and the former president's dinner with Nick Fuentes and the rapper formerly known as Kanye West. You obviously have covered former President Trump very closely. Mm. I wonder what you're hearing about his standing in the GOP and whether or not this is a political strategy, a winning strategy in his mind to appeal to the fringes of society. Well, I, I don't know that, uh, that this is so much of a strategy uh, and, and, and kind of what he has left here, right? I mean, this is, uh, uh, I, you, to, be, to be fair to President Trump, he did not invite uh, a lot of these folks to Mar-a-Lago. That's not to excuse this either, though. Uh, some of the Nick Fuentes, uh, 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 it, it's kind of been lost here that, that, that Trump did bring in Kanye West, who has right. um, 
you know, ha has had a track record here of some of some racist, anti-Semitic anti -Semitic comments. Um, and what I'm hearing from a lot of Republicans is that should have been enough. Right. The, the, the fact that, um, you know, whether or not he knew who Nick Fuentes was, a, a, an avowed uh, white nationalist, um, to bring him in um, is really beside the point. Right. The, the, that the leader of the Republican Party, um, the, you know, the most recent president, uh, 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 the leading contender for the nomination in 2024 right now, yeah. should have known better than to mm -hmm. bring in Kanye West. Full stop. Period. Right there, yep. and and I'm hearing from Republicans that, that they, they they've kind of had enough. That this is kind of par for the course. You know, there, there there's not a lot of surprise that that Trump kind of walked right into this. Um, that uh, you know that that he should have a little bit more of a vetting process around him. Yeah. You know, they say he's going to, but also, I mean, Kanye went there. Kanye West went there and uh, asked Trump to be his running mate. That's also another point. It's that's really kind of interesting yeah. that you bring that up. And, and Nia, I want to bring you in here because you've obviously covered race and civil rights in this country. What do you make of the way that this has played out? I mean, I wouldn't get into the. We don't have enough minutes to get into Kanye West, but just tell me what you're what you're hearing from your sources. Well, listen, this isn't a surprise. I mean, we know who Donald Trump is. We know the kind of footsie that he has played uh, with white supremacists. This is a flashback to what happened in 2016 around David Duke, him pretending not to know who David Duke was. Uh, and, you know, his campaign in 2016 was sort of white grievance meets economic populism. Uh, and now it seems to just be white grievance. There's no sort of uh, economic populism. There isn't a kind of build the wall slogan. It's just sort of down to his own sort of personal uh, delusions and uh, misgivings about what happened in 2020 and, and conspiracy theories. And, and listen, this is why he lost in 2020. This is why they lost in 2018. And this is why Republicans also, who tied themselves so closely to Trump's identity, whether it was around election denialism, or the kind of low-grade white supremacist rhetoric, that's why they lost. I mean, the extremes of the party lost up and down the ballot, these Trump handpicked candidates. And so this, this is a real problem, I think, for the Republican Party among the leadership they have essentially sort of, for, for years, just kind of ignored it. Uh, it is festered among actual voters, and it's not clear that Republican voters are sick of Donald Trump's rhetoric. Primary voters, the kind of voters yeah. who would actually matter in him winning the nomination in 2024. And related so listen, to this conversation that we're having, Nia, I want to just bring up, of course, that there are only weeks left before they complete their work and before Democrats lose power in the House. The January 6th committee, which is doing a lot of work on white supremacy, I should add, met today to discuss whether to make criminal referrals to the Justice Department. And this week, Democratic committee member Zoe Lofgren said that the probe's final report will be released this month. Meanwhile, on Tuesday, founder of the far-right Oath Keeper, Stuart Road, was found guilty of seditious conspiracy for his role in the Capitol attack. The prosecution of him and others from this group is the most consequential January 6th case to have come out of the Justice Department's investigation. So, Asma, I want to bring you in. We're talking about white supremacy and hate speech. This, of course, ties into all of that. So what's your sense of the, of the consequential, I should say, of the impact, rather, of this guilty verdict, the January 6th committee's work? I mean, I think that Stuart Rhodes' guilty conviction is, is really quite monumental. I mean, he was found guilty of seditious conspiracy. That's not an easy charge for prosecutors. You know, to, for, um, the jury did convict him of that. I'm sorry. And so there, that's not an easy charge, I was saying, for prosecutors to get. Uh, it is something that they were able to convince the jury that he is guilty of. So that in itself, I think, is, is really significant. The other thing is, though, I think, you know, there have been questions about 
the purpose of the Justice Department doing all of this. And when you get a guilty conviction at this level, to me it sort of validates the work that the Justice Department has been doing. Now, again, whether or not that is significant in the sort of political context ahead of Republican primaries in 2024 is a totally different thing. But I think it, it signifies to people that this was significant and that there will be consequences for the behavior that took place on Jan 6. And, Michael, some of those consequences mm -hmm. could be what the January 6th committee is looking at right now, which is criminal referrals. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was a huge victory for the Justice Department, no question. They, they're going to have some big cases coming up here uh, uh, in the next few weeks, so we'll see if, if they can, can re repeat that success. But but there, there are going to be political consequences for this. And, and I did want to kind of circle back to something I said earlier. I didn't mean to, to suggest that, that all Trump had left was white supremacists and white nationalists. But, but when, when he's, he, he's, he's shedding 10 percent of the party uh, in polls, uh, exit polls from 2020, 2022 as well, um, and heading into 2024, he's not done anything to uh, bring the party back together, and which leads into to, to some of the January 6th uh, um, uh, issues. Um, we saw the election deniers lose kind of up and down the ballot from coast to coast. Yeah. Um, and when, if the the man that Democrats have been charging as, as most responsible for the riots on January 6th, if he is at the top of the ballot, I think you're going to see a um, uh, you see that continue to play out and have consequences for Republicans for the next couple of years. And we should just jump in here. We covered Trump together. We've seen him sort of play footsie with 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 some of these groups. What what do you make of this? What's your reporting reveal about what's going on? So Nia got it exactly right that this is nothing new, um, and so did Michael because I was in that gaggle with Kevin McCarthy when he was first asked about this, and his response was, "Well, President Trump didn't know who Nick Fuentes was," and at the you know in unison, me and other reporters screamed like, but he knew who Kanye was, right? And so um, I think that is a really important point because President Trump has been here before and it's always about him. It's not about condemning, um, you know, in fact, he hasn't condemned Fuentes yet, even though now he does know who he is, right? I mean, like, it, it's about him. It's about, well, I didn't know who he was. Yeah. When it comes to QAnon, it was about, well, I didn't know who they were, but they liked me very much. Of course, this is a political strategy. Um, we can't forget what helped him win in 2016, which was giving, um, you know, a voice yeah. to people who thought they didn't have one certainly. when it came to saying these things out and, loud. And certainly we have to keep on covering as we continue to see these developments happen, these scary developments happen. So thanks to our panelists for joining us and for sharing your reporting. And on tomorrow's PBS News Weekend, we get the latest from Georgia ahead of Tuesday's runoff election. Good night from Washington. Thanks for watching.